0: All right, Um, so yeah, let's start. Um, I'll start by um, introducing myself and then talking a bit about um, the project that this uh, webinar um, is part of. And then I will um, introduce the speakers so we could swiftly uh, move on um, to our uh, discussion today in this event, uh, which is under the title um, Engaging Arabic News Audiences from from London. Uh, My name is Dr. Omar Al-Ghazi. I am assistant professor in the Department of of Media and Communication um, at the London School of um, Economics and Political Science. Um, And uh, my research interest is in um, digital journalism and also the the, uh, politics of of memory in the Middle East and uh, North Africa. But in this uh, webinar, the the research project um, that... um, it is part of, it's called Arab News Futures, um, which is led by myself and my um, colleague, um, Dr. Abir al najar from the American University of, um, of Sharjah. Um, and we have been um, engaging, we have been talking to and interviewing um, Arabic speaking um, journalists, editors, um, news industry leaders um, about their understanding um, of the Arabic speaking audience how they um, how they imagine that audience how they reach out to that audience how they measure um, audience participation and all of, how that informs um, journalism in the um, in the Arab world um, so we are um, still conducting um, conducting the research and the end result will be a report um, issued by the uh, Middle East Center because this project is, is funded by the Middle East Center, um, as well as um, an academic um, article about um, about perceptions of the and understandings of the Arab audience now and kind of with an eye into um, into the uh, future. Um, and um, just to say that the uh, the format of this um, discussion would be more of an exchange rather than like formal uh, presentations. Um, So for the audience, please feel free to use the Q&A feature um, throughout the the discussion. Um, And I will pick up on on your questions and um, address them to our, um, our speakers. And just to note that this event is being um, is being recorded um, and it will um, it will be like a, a podcast part of the podcast series of the um, LSE Middle East center if you would like to tweet about the event um, you can do so using the hashtag lSE Middle East LSE Middle East um, okay so welcome to our four wonderful um, speakers in alphabetical order. They are um, Najla Abu Marri, who is um, senior journalist, presenter, and writer with Al-Arabi TV since um, 2017. Um, before that, she worked for uh, BBC Arabic TV for, um, for 10 years. Um, she has about 20 years of experience working for different media platforms, um, radio, Online and TV, and outlets in Beirut and London. She has presented news, reported, supervised, and produced political talk shows, um, documentaries, and reported on special coverage, including on the Sudan uprising, Algeria, uh, Butafrika resignation, the Gaza war, the Beirut explosion. And uh, most recently, she actually just came back from Kyiv, where she was reporting on the, on the Ukraine uh, war. Our second um, speaker is. Uh, Ibrahim Hamidi, who is a Syrian journalist and senior diplomatic editor at the London-based Al-Sharq al-Awsat um, newspaper. Hamidi was the Damascus bureau chief of the um, Arabic daily, also the London-based Arabic daily Al-Hayat for um, 22 years. And he contributes to several other international uh, media outlets and think tanks. Uh, Maino Aman, our third um, speaker, is a media consultant and strategist. She's currently the digital um, content editor for BBC Arabic. Um, She is responsible for leading digital video content aimed at reaching young and female audiences. Before joining BBC Arabic, May worked as a senior journalist with the BBC's World Service digital development team, tasked with overseeing the digital transformation of the BBC's 40 different language services. Um, and she has assisted journalists in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East to set digital strategies and create visual content. And finally, um, last but not least, is Isam um, Udayqat. He is co-founder and editor of the award-winning political satire magazine, al Hudud With experience working in animation, film writing, and software development, Isam has run al Hudud as a multidisciplinary, innovative organization, challenging how media in the Middle East region and um, the public interact. All right, so welcome everyone. I'm really excited and looking forward to our to our discussion and to your uh, to kind of gauge your thoughts. Um, my first question, and perhaps I will I, I'll start alphabetically um, with um, with Najla, um, is to speak about. Um, the engagement with the audience, um, whether in your in your role or drawing on a, your experience um, in Al Arabi TV and uh, previously in um, BBC Arabic, they're both London-based organizations, but uh, but have a different uh, kind of outlook and, and editorial policy. So my question is, how how has the idea of the Arabic audience informed? Um, informed your, your journalism and how did it feed into your um, daily practices of, of reporting or editorial um, choices? Um, Najla, you're on mute.
1: I was so uh, focusing on just like keeping myself in mute until <laughs> I start, I forgot myself. Hello everybody and uh, marhaba, thank you for uh, having me here with you. So. If I, if I understood it well, I mean, um, obviously you mentioned it, you mentioned BBC Arabic, you mentioned Al-Arabi and maybe other um, outlets, whether um, we're talking about TV channels or newsprint as the Sharq al or Al-Hayat before. Um, each one of them, they, were, they are based or they were based in London, but they have their uh, own approaches. But if I understood, you know, also the, the question that you previously sent and now you um, reiterated this, Uh, The engagement is um, not only based on um, being in London and seeing the Arab world from this European eye or this British eye or whatever, it's not about this, because some of them, they are BBC. Uh, part, of, for example, BBC Arabic is part of the BBC World Service. It's part of the, um, you know, the, the whole perspective, British perspective to the Arab world. But the others are Pan Arab outlet. It's just they are based in London for reasons. Maybe we'll talk about it uh, during um, this panel. But um, ideally, how to engage with the, the Arab speakers or the Arab audience? Um, it has many elements. First of all, each Pan Arab channel or site or whatever outlet um, has an owner, has a funder, has a vision, so they already know how they want to approach the Arab world because they have the previous setup of how they see the Arab uh, society or Arab audience, and they want to address it in a certain way. Uh, How to continue this engagement, this may be where the details of the questions um, are. Um, Basically, there's the the editorial line or the agenda, if you want to call it, and uh, there are many, um, you know, derived uh, elements of this, but also there is um, obviously the news that it's forcing itself on the, the music grid or news programs or being part of it. Um, but at the same time, how to continue this engagement, this is where the difficulty is because you are in London and you're not on the ground, sort of sort of speak, you need to rely on other elements. Ideally, or supposedly, you should have um, a professional company where they do the, um, you know, the studies for you. They give you the figures, the statistics. They will tell you how uh, you are engaged or how you need to be engaged. But this is not the case, as far as I know, or my assumption and my my opinion as well. Um, so that's why you find that they stick to their own vision how they need to address or to engage with the Arab uh, audience, and uh, it has some advantage maybe but also it has some negativity because you might sometimes sound that you are far away from the the actual Arab audience. Now there's uh, another um, alternative way that you see many people are relying on is the the social media now. They are all you know going through studying the social media interaction whether by seeing the likings, by the views, uh, by how trending we are but also this is, has also its, uh, you know, on, um, disadvantages, because um, if we compare this to other, let's say, uh, results of uh, elections that happens, they made their polls uh, based on this interaction. And in reality, it was so deceiving. So this might be also one of the challenges that we will talk about later. Um, so. If, 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 you wanna in, if you wanna study more the engagement, you will see that there is a um, uh, hold on certain programs, for example, and as a viewer, you might say, why they are sticking to this program? Does it have really uh, an interaction with them? Does, does it have uh, a good feedback about? Sometimes it would be based on the interaction on the social media, but also it could be just simply because they believe that this is how we should address this audience. And in fact, it's not always like uh, wrong to do so, because as a channel, as a journalist, even not necessarily to be an entity, but as a personal entity, as a journalist, you want to make a change. You want to say your opinion, you want to say your vision. So you shouldn't always rely on this interaction that it's like coming to feed you as uh, to, to change Uh, your content or to change your mind but it's always good to to have um, tools such as could be the social media, it's not bad at all, but also could be being actually on the ground. Uh, if we are not talking about organizations, if you are talking about us as a journalist, being on the ground, it gives you a different sense, different feel. Um, Sometimes, and probably many of us, will rely on the interaction with um, real people, not just only watching what they are uh, uh, posting or uh, publishing, but just like having proper conversation with them to see how really we are talking about the this topics that it's really interesting the 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 viewership or the you know citizens the society so it's a bit like it it has different factors and different elements that plays into this engagement and um, you should tailor it i don't know if you should 100% tailor it. You should, I think, just like adopt maybe uh, new tools to engage it, but keep uh, the authenticity of your own vision or your own um, message that you want to send. But here, maybe we're gonna open another path, whether like really the content remain uh, authentic content when you use a certain tool and how the technology and the tools are actually affecting the content itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Najla. This certainly kind of uh, is a good start to the, to the conversation because you brought different elements to, uh, to the discussion. Um so maybe I'll, I'll move to, uh, to Brahim, um, to get like a different per- perspective, like while you, you drew on, Najla, you drew on uh, kind of your experience in um, TV, uh, ju- like in uh, broadcast journalism uh, based in London and uh kind of with an idea of the Arab audience. Uh, with Brahim, your experience is in print media. Um, you Sharq al-Awsat now is one of the oldest, actually, like London-based um, Arabic media outlets. Um, it is known perhaps as, um, like it, ha- it has a, a caliber readership. So how is, how is the audience viewed from, uh, from like within Sharq al-Awsat? And how does that inform your, um, your reporting? Um,
2: yeah, you're also on mute. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Omar. And uh, uh, I, I, it was very interesting, interesting to listen to Najla. And uh, hello, everybody. As you, I mean, you, you you asked us to be very informal, so I've tried to be very informal. I'll tell you my own experience. As you said, I've been working, I've worked in Damascus for 22 years as a bureau chief for Al-Hayat. And then I moved to London. I worked with Al-Hayat for four years, and then I moved to Asha in 2017. Uh, Out of my experience, like I've been working for almost 30 years in journalism in Damascus, Beirut, and and London. You know, for me, one of the most interesting issue is that, I mean, when I used to work in Damascus is that I used to deal with one censor, which is the the Syrian regime, Raqib Wahid. Uh, I I worked uh, for 10 years under the rule of Hafez al-Assad, but always was very easy to know where the the red lines are and then you decide whether you cross the red lines and then i knew the punishment the punishment i mean my license uh, been suspended seven times uh, under the rule of of house i said and i knew that was the cost i interviewed the leader of abdullah of pkk once and then i knew that okay i did this and if i did this interview then my license will be suspended then when Bashar came to power, two thousand, I mean the red lines were not very clear. I mean, you have to test all the time. And on surface, you are supposed and you are allowed, you are allowed to write anything, anytime. time. But in reality, the risk all the risk always was there. That was that why I was arrested once, and then I, I was under house arrest once. But overall, for twenty years. I always had to deal with one sensor, whether I knew that where the headlines were or where, whether I did not know that. When I came to London, that was completely different experience. I mean, coming back to your question, talking about how you engage with the audience. Now, when you move to London, in theory, of course, all of us, I mean, Najla, or or I do most of us moved to London either for political reasons or for economic reasons, but most of us actually came for political reasons. So we came seeking for, like, sort of to be free from any kind of red lines. When you come to London and you work in journalism, you realize one very interesting thing, which is actually instead of dealing with one censor, you deal with 22 censors. If you produce a newspaper in, 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 in like London or Paris or any European capital, in theory, you are you are like supposed to have like, okay, to write about anything, anywhere. But in reality, if you want your voice to be heard and read by readers, then you have to know what, what, what is the, the position of each and single government, whether it is Sudan or Yemen, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, that is maybe a bit uh, a pessimistic view, but if you would like to see the positive part of this, now I've been here now for 10 years, I don't know about the experience of Najla and uh, Islam and others, yes, there is negative part of it. Like, okay, you have to, uh, you know, you have to be more careful in a way, but actually there is very positive part, which is, being, for example, in Ashaq al or being in Al-Haq before. I mean, I, I'm Syrian, Najla is Lebanese, like the maximum you would, if you would work in Lebanese newspaper in Beirut, you would mingle with what, Syrian Lebanese. But here you have complete different exposure, you have different experience. You mingle with journalists, activists from completely different uh, backgrounds and different countries. And that's what I think. It's one of the most interesting values that we we I gained here in in in, in, in London. So there is positive part. Now, once again, back to your question, uh, the 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 original question. Uh, uh, another observation I would like to make, which is how we engage with our audience. Yes, uh, I think Najla touched upon on this. That. Now, with the social media, it's very easy. I mean, now it's very easy. Now we can, you can, now it's interesting. I always tell this uh, example to many friends. Now, I know about my, I am from Idlib, northwest of Syria. I know every day what's what my neighbor is doing in Idlib, every day, seriously, on WhatsApp or uh, Viber or Signal, or whatever. Or he tells me like the whole stories, like as like newspaper. I mean, like, he tells me everything, they told me what's happening there, but I know nothing about what's happening here, like next door. I remember when I was in Damascus, I used to speak more English than here. Actually, I speak less English in London that I don't know about your experience. So anyway, there's like, okay, how we do, how we engage with our audience. I mean, yes, we engage with them through social media, but actually sometimes this is, it's false, it's fake, because we, you you think that you know what's happening but actually maybe you don't know what really what really is happening so that's why you need a lot you you, you have to be very professional you have to be to do that of checking verification uh, etc um yeah mm-hmm. i think I will, I will i will leave it here and maybe then we can mm-hmm. talk more yeah, thank you uh, thank
0: you ibrahim and certainly we'll we'll come back to the, the to the points um you made and it was it is very interesting what you said also about, about censorship and how like the experience for journalists, like when, when that is overwhelming, perhaps you don't think about the readers and the audience. You're more worried about the censors and what is, what is allowed and not allowed um, in, in terms of the reporting. Um, so perhaps, May, will, you will give us a different um, perspective because it was part of your job to to really measure that um, that audience and and come up with strategies to expand um, the audience, particularly young people. So can you can you tell us about that um, in BBC Arabic?
3: Yes, the million dollar question: How do you attract newer and more younger audiences? Um, I think the question about how we engage the audience is a very crucial one for us as. Arab media outlets based outside um, the region, because as we've all mentioned, the the biggest disadvantage is that we're not there. Um, But as as, as, as Najla and Ibrahim mentioned, you know, thanks to social media, engaging with the audience has become much easier and faster and instant than ever. Um, We got to a point where the audience actually expects us to engage and listen. Um, And when we don't do so, um, it puts us at an immediate disadvantage. And I think there's a great deal of value for us in engaging and in listening because the type of news that we used to cover and think of traditionally as news has also changed. um, And that is being shaped not by us anymore and that we, we struggle as news organizations to deal with that because we believe we have the editorial experience, we believe we have, have a good uh, editorial judgment to decide what is news and what does it, what isn't. But obviously that is in many ways based on and biased by our own understanding of the world. Um, and because social media has um, leveled that playing field, we are now being challenged and pushed to think outside the remit and framework of what we consider is news. Um, In terms of listening uh, or engaging, uh, to be honest, I think for larger news organizations like the BBC, it is far easier to do listening than engaging consistently. And I think, I don't know if, if, if the, the, the distinction there is, is clear between the two, but when you're engaging, you're constantly looking at what they're doing and commenting and you're replying. And that, you know, we've tried to go down that route, but it's, you know, for larger organizations with multiple platforms, multiple programs, it's, how much it takes a lot of resources to do that consistently and do it well, because it also takes um, a whole new policy and understanding um, of how you want to engage with with that audience. Now, the brilliant thing about listening is you get to understand a little bit um, of the consumption behavior. And I think both Najla and made a really good point about we can't just rely on what we're seeing, the metrics to inform us of what we think the audience wants or what um, they actually believe, because it could be, it's not necessarily representative, but it does tell us quite a fair bit about the consumption behavior and how it has changed um, over time. And it continues to change at a very fast pace and even probably too fast for larger news organizations to adapt quickly to. So for example, facebook the for a video the, the the average retention is 11 seconds now how how what kind of quality engagement is that for us um as newsmaker and content makers you know Najla's out there covering the the and reporting from the from the field and here we, we put all our resources and knowledge and and important information out there only to be consumed in on a platform that is you know uh, encourages scrolling habits and doesn't necessarily give you the quality engagement that you're seeking. Um, And that's where the challenge is, the balance between looking at the metrics to inform our decision-making and and give us a clearer picture about the consumption habits um, that are changing. Um, And taking everything with a pinch of salt, understanding that there's a wider world out there. There's also a silent majority. So when you look at the social media platforms, and especially, you know, if you look at the news um, accounts um, and the comments section, it's mostly men, and there's a reason for that. Social media commenting and engaging is not necessarily a safe environment for everyone to speak in, because as we know, especially in our region, certain topics, um, many topics are very polarized. Um, and it can get very heated very quickly and so there's a silent majority we don't hear from they might like our they might like our content or don't dislike it they might want to engage with it but not all platforms are catering for that giving them that safe um, platform to do so um, and so we basically we try what we try to do is put in a lot of effort to understand how our, the content that we produce is, is performing because I think without doing that, you're risking a lot. You're risking um, not adapting to what um, to the changes that are quickly happening on these platforms. And I don't necessarily... It's a hard one because you don't want to, for example, if a story doesn't do well, you decide And, you know, we've seen that, you know, I'm from Yemen. A story about Yemen doesn't necessarily, you can't can't compete with a story from Syria or a story from Egypt. That's just how the the nature of of the story. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to cover Yemen. It just presents us with the challenge of how do you then cover these stories that matter? And we, as journalists, we believe um, should inform the public about in a way that caters to the consumption behavior of that platform and and this is again uh the tricky part so when we're talking about are we understanding the audience or are we understanding the platform and the algorithm of the platform um and a lot of the times you are trying to c- play catch up with the constant changes as soon as Facebook or Instagram change the, their algorithm then you're kind of left in a in a fit trying to catch up and how do you change the structure of your storytelling and the headline and everything to go along with the algorithm so that the maximum audience are reached for what you believe is an important topic. Um, So, yeah, that's, I don't know if that made sense, but that's just one of the many challenges we have with trying to engage the elusive audience on on digital platforms. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, May. That that, uh, was very, thought-provoking as well. Um, I'm going to move to Asam now. And um, for those of you in the audience who don't know, um, Al-Hudud is a, is a satirical um, magazine, which is mostly online. Um, that's my, my understanding. Um, and so it is perhaps a, a very different uh, engagement with the with the audience online. So, Asam, what's your kind of... Uh, answer to this general uh,
4: discussion um first of all uh, thank you uh, all of you for the very good points you've made i'm gonna try not to repeat anyone's points in, in some ways and try to build on them uh, as much as possible um i think um for us um so the way we've we were trying to do it it's like after we sort of got established a little bit we tried to get to be very active and engaged, and like properly, as May was saying, like actually comment, uh, actually respond to people and to, to their uh, interactions. But then it became, like it can become really, really difficult. Most journalists, uh, I don't think you could leave that for a like sort of like that, an engagement person because you need someone who is understanding editorial like so deeply that if that is the person who is doing that, they need to be a journalist most journalists don't want to be in that place. They don't want to be responding to majority, just like offensive stuff that is coming their way. So um, now I think it's like we've gone into a place where it's like we're mostly reactive, um, so it's like a lot of people come to us. Either it's like when, when there's something worth responding to, we make sure that we respond to it, but we don't try to just engage for the sake of engagement because again, it's a losing battle. I think uh, we're losing to the algorithms, and it's not the way the way we should be um, approaching it. Um, so um, what we try to do, I think there are like quite a few things that are very relevant. A lot of our audience see um see us as a place to highlight issues that aren't being talked about so if so a lot of people come to us it's like oh it's like have you seen this have you seen that piece of news and this is i think this is one of the most difficult stuff in building our work because like you know building good like like covering stories better this just um whether through satire or other mediums you need just like really good journalists who are like really covering everything from every angle and i think there isn't enough I think no matter it's like how much there is, like the, the region is massive. And I think like the, 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 the per capita of journalist and journalism is not actually large enough. So it, it kind of complicates things. So going back to um, how we're engaging with them, what we try to do as much as possible is make it as personal a relationship as possible. What I thought was the least engaging way, is like we always think of social media as the most interactive thing. Um, weirdly, it's uh, for us, it's newsletters. We send out newsletters to thousands of people. We have an incredibly high um, open rate. I think probably one of the highest in the industry. Like I think fifty-five percent. Um, so, but that, but we write them very personally. We write them as actual messages to people to like to to like really try to get that engagement out to them. And this is where we get a lot of our responses, and especially from people who. We want their opinion. I think, again, if you go down the route of listening to everyone, it's like the, the combination of like nastiness and conspiracy theories and things that are not worth responding to is just too much. It affects, as Brian was saying, it's like it affects your, uh, sorry, Nejla, I mean, like, it affects your editorial policy too much. You need to just, you know what you want, you know your angle, you know what's important for you. Um, and therefore, you need to know who you're listening to, obviously very very shaky ground of knowing this like decide because every decision of who you're listening to is deciding everything uh, about um your credibility really um so that, that takes a lot of internal editorial uh, uh discussions uh, on a daily basis um and then finally which i think has been has been very good i think potentially because we started digital and because we try to be as engaging as possible in that way um our audience is quite highly uh, reactive and engaged. So with, um, we send out usually an annual survey, which is filled out by thousands of people. Um, and, And I mean like 60, a 60 person survey, which takes about 30 minutes, which is filled by thousands. And I think that informs us a lot more because you need qualitative data. Like we use quite a lot of softwares to like measure, you know, the, the, the read depth and how long they've read and, it's like, and what really counts as a read and all that. But at the, at the end of the day, all of that, no matter how qualitative it is, it is not as qualitative as actual um. Uh, either conversations or uh, actual surveys which are getting you like real data about how people are feeling about the things you're working on. Um, um, I think yeah I think this is Um, Yeah, and I think, yeah, one one last thing is I think because the engagement for us kind of goes both ways Um, and what we try to do is obviously there is the part where we want to react to them, but we also give them as many ways as possible to engage with things we're producing. So, for example, with the, um, I don't know how many people here might be familiar, we're on something called al hududs Award for Worst Arab Journalism, um, where we... I just highlight the failures that we see in the media, uh, whether it was um, in, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, 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 what's it called? Uh, um, suddenly lost the word. Sorry, um, but basically, it's like whether it was bias, whether it was uh, sycophantism, whatever it is, it's like we, just, we 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 run through these, and on our website we get people to vote, we run the end of the year based on that. So the content we produce, we get people to vote on it at the end of the year, we get people to engage with it further. And this is like an important part of how we try to create our content, that in itself, it is engaging rather than, oh, how can we make, let people engage on something that we've produced? Um, I think maybe I have a couple of minutes there, because there's one more thing that's um uh that that might be interesting to say which is um in regards to how we produce for it to be engaging I think with each platform how we produce content it's that in itself is a decision that will lead to different engagement and that will lead and, and that is also an editorial decision so the way when we're producing something, we try not to get something that's written and then it's like, oh, okay, so how do we get that on Instagram? What we're working on, and especially we started this this year, is as it's being created, how can that be distributed in the best way? Because if it's distributed well, then it will be engaged well with.
0: Okay, so yeah, the content sometimes dri- drives kind of... Uh, the audience engagement rather than the other way around. Um, okay, I, I wanted, um, so thank you for, for you know, this, this first answer. And while you were speaking, I was wondering, like, thinking about um, also the way that, like, let's say the academic literature deals with um, the issues of funding of media and how in the West, we hear a lot about the challenges of news organizations in terms of um, staying afloat in terms of you know getting sources of, of funding relying on advertising in the Arab world the political economy of news organizations is very different because most of news organizations are either rely on government funding including European governments or you know governments in, um, in the Arab world or NGOs perhaps like with the alternative um, platforms so does that does that funding model Uh, make the question of um audience less relevant do do these funders care about um you know expanding the audience and really pressure like their editors and journalists to produce a kind of content that expands the audience in your experience and this is open for anyone who would like to answer
2: i can i can i can can make very quick comment Mm -hmm, yeah um, very quick i mean before uh uh, I think uh, Arab media used to be controlled by governments, different governments. I mean what 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 has changed in the last twenty years, thirty years? I think uh, uh, I mean we've moved from public sector to private sector, privatizing the uh, media and the Arab world. I mean, but instead of controlling the media via censorship in a way, I think, the new wave is like just to control it through funding. Either most of the media is controlled by, I mean, owned by government or businessmen close to the governments, or the other way is just to control it through advertisement because, I mean, through the, uh, through the market. So if you, if you, I mean, write any story that will upset any government anywhere, then you will not get advertisement, then you, you have to change your, your policy. I think that is the big change.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: Um, hello. <laughs> so I think like, just to follow up on this, and uh, maybe uh, I mentioned this briefly uh, at the beginning, I mean, definitely the funder, whether it's political entity or it's uh, advertising and publicity entity, and there are examples on this, or whether it's uh, even if it's like, um, let's say, e- even if the owner or the the, the the entity behind this outlet is not political, it's even, um, I don't know, charity, or it doesn't matter the, the, the identity of this uh, owner, funder, uh, advertiser, they definitely have a say in the editorial line because basically they are funding this for a purpose. And from this main purpose, you have derived purposes that will uh, uh, tailor the news grid that they will uh, it will tailor your programs uh, um, uh, grid uh, it will also tailor your focus on certain country rather than another country on this category rather than th- the other category if we are talking let's say uh, an entity that it has the vision about um, and there are examples here I don't want to mention names of different outlets but let's say their main focus is a human rights and uh, diversity Uh, uh, LGBT plus whatever it is this will be definitely in their agenda and it will um, you know channel everything they do. Now when you unplug the the funding definitely it will have an effect whoever is like powering the the money definitely it will have a say Um, but the thing is that it's not the only factor that is driving or tailoring your content because uh, now everybody is smart, they want to pass the message, but also to pass it, you need to be diverse and pass other messages around. So that's why you find many professional or uh, in, in professional in terms of like technically the craft of journalism, they are recruited by all the other outlets, because it's nearly impossible to find any outlet now, whether it's side TV, radio, whatever it is, any medium now that it hasn't uh, back up political, uh, financial, whatever it is. However, this is done under a bigger umbrella that you have, uh, you can find in this outlet a proper journalism, a proper p- people that they are doing their job you know, uh, uh, as best as they can, and you will have these different messages. Uh, I can remember now in in Lebanon, there is a a very well-known channel that it's actually so-called affiliated with a political stream, but who is actually running it and uh, channeling all the messages uh, through this channel is the advertiser. Uh, so and it was like a really conflict at the end that it led to to have uh, liquidification of you know um, the the channel and changed basically the identity after this like conflict reached the, the climax. So there's a lot of factors, but I I want to um, you know liaise this to why we had London before as hub for Arab media. If I you know go back to this, initially Beirut. Probably was the capital of like so called free speech and you know print and everything in it. But when the civil war you know uh, erupted, it was a migration to London, and that's where you find Al uh, Hayat and other print. Before, obviously, there were like a BBC Arabic radio and the attempt to do TV later, which is failed. and later we had uh, the two thousand seven launching, which as I'm probably I was part of this, but. Um, it, it had a reason that it was like a free speech here. You are capable of to say whatever you want to say. And we, we, we know that these outlets, they were political, political from the Arab world. So it's like, it's really mixed. So it's, it, you know, it, it, there is definitely an agenda, but they cannot do it in the Arab countries. They came here to London to do it. And it lasted for decades until like, let's say in the last 10 years, We again see another re-migration, if you want to call it, or uh, going back home, where uh, because of changes, social and political and other circumstances that changed in the Arab world and definitely in the countries where they have the capital and the funds to do so, uh, it's more going back to be more national pan-Arab thing, but not necessarily fr- from London. And this is nef- definitely, it has an impact on what kind of Arab, if if I may call it Arab journalism in London, because it's changing. Like if we go back to the uh, type of journalists you had in 70s, they are not the same you had in 90s. They are not the same that you have in 2000 and so you know uh, onward um before you had more names of writers novelists that they are working in this media now you have more as um journalists as craft journalists regardless of their uh, you know other titles and they are just like on board to do this uh, journalism mm-hmm. aside
0: okay very interesting thanks Najla. um assam you wanted to say something about the funding
4: yeah uh, No, i was just gonna say that i think I think for um, sort of either government funded or um, businessmen backed, uh, 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 government backed businessmen funded uh, organizations, it's not an existential issue. So how much they engage and how many people you get to read you is not going to change your funding. It's going to be the same. The advertisers will probably almost be the same. It will be different by a little bit. Uh, but if it's government funding, you're, you're you're going to be getting it basically. But for other, I think for other organizations, it becomes an existential issue. So for for us, the more readers we have, the more n- newsletter members we have potentially, and then basically the, taking them down the funnel to becoming members who are supporting us. So we got like about. of our funding now from our members 20% we make it through our own sort of like services that we that we provide and then we get a certain amount obviously from uh, like grants basically but that also gets less and less with time and you need to be able to be making your own stuff so I think it's a very different conversation depending on your funding what engagement means to each organization. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. And, and May, um, if, I, um, if I want to follow up on, on your experience as well, um, you have previously told me uh, like about the challenges of particularly using digital technologies to expand the audience and how to kind of get, get um, readers and viewers to, to the BBC multi-platform um, um, content rather than stay on Instagram or, um, or social media. Outlets, can you tell us a bit more about about that?
3: So I think our approach to adopting and adapting um, to digital technologies and social media has been slow at first, (laughs) to be kind. But that's for several reasons and I think they're very valid reasons. Um, Initially, there was a degree of skepticism around, you know, as we mentioned before, the kind of quality of engagement that you would find um taking your content out of your own owned platforms to third-party platforms um secondly there was ambiguity around who owns and ultimately is responsible for the content that you see on these third-party platforms and that included kind of complications around restrictions around copyright so you you might have the right to publish something on your website but actually they say no no but not on social media so that added new constraints that we weren't ready for um there was also a question about not having the same control over the environment where you present your content so we're traditionally used to showcasing our content within like the news bulletin within a, a wider program we know where it sits we know what it complements same with our website on the in the web page we know that this piece of news Um, complements the rest of what we're offering on that day. Now, when you publish something on a third party platform, like a social media platform, you're presenting that as a standalone piece and you don't know how the audience are going to reflect and and view that in what kind of environment. And it could be wildly different content that it's it's a part of. You could have been like one of the stories that you do that day could be like, you know, what we call a, a kind of a divert me story, which, um, could be a lighthearted story um, next to a lot of news of, of really awful things happening in the world and you know you risk the VBC coming across as making light of, of a situation or it's just it's harder to control and we're used to being in control as news organizations so we've lost a little bit of that so there's a, a degree of of pushing back against that. Um there's also a big issue for us is brand attribution is quite low on social platforms. And what I mean by that is we will produce the content, we'll put it out there, but because of the multitude of content that you find on social platforms and the way we consume the content, it's not necessarily when, you, when you've done research, people who consume the content won't necessarily be able to tell you who it came from. And that's why you find a lot of news organizations investing in a very specific branding. You look at AJ Plus, it's like they've got distinct colors, they've got distinct style. And so everyone started ad- adopting that. Um, and it, It's harder, I think, when you're covering the news because it could all look the same <laughs> much easier. Um, and so again, it's an issue of, of perception and control from that news organizations are again used to. And one of the challenges that we, I think we mentioned before and we still face today is how quickly we're able to adapt to to new technologies for a big organization like the BBC. And I I recall the the big project that we had for 2020. So 2020 is a big project that the BBC went through to transform the World Service specifically um, to digital platforms, which meant that we, Um, Spent time with the viewers around the world, trying to understand their models of engaging with their audience, what their purpose is, what their vision is, and how do we understand their market and and how do we deliver that and build a strategy around that. And you can think of 40 language services and and a small team that's trying to understand the market, trying to understand the platforms and everything around it, and delivering training specifically measured and and tailored for each um, uh, language service and the platform that took close to two years and by the end of it everything changed and we had to change again and so the pace of change is so fast that for larger news organizations it's still very it's it's one of the biggest challenges that we could face is how do we adapt quickly um when it's still a process of centralized decision making at the top because of all the, the reasons that we mentioned before. There are concerns and there are policies and there are brand related issues that has to be decided from the top and then trickle down. And by the time it trickles down, it's already too late. Um, so those are the real big challenges for us. And I don't know. I don't have the answer on how we become more agile, to be honest. Um, we've tried several different ways, but it's, there's this constant conflict between maintaining the big brand, which goes against mm-hmm. the fast pace of news cha- news changes nowadays. Okay, thank you.
0: And before I, I move on to a couple of questions, oh, am I, no, I thought I'm muted for a second. Before I move on to the couple of questions um, in the q and I, I just wanted to also Ask uh, maybe Ibrahim but also um, others. Um, like the the other side of the audience is public opinion, and in the Arab world, like that has been kind of like an, a very romanticized idea that uh, like the the notion of like Sharia al Arabi, the Arab street, or Jamhur al Arabi, like these you know going back to the days of, of Arab nationalism. Um, so and and I think especially with the London press, like this has been. Kind of like a, a way to address like a Sharia al arabi previously um, in the in the like in the 80s and, and 90s. How, how like what is left of that notion? Is it useful at all? Like the idea of is it basically in short, is there an Arab audience? Is that even a thing? Uh, um, I don't know.
2: I mean I don't think so. I don't think so. I think. Um, it is very difficult, uh, especially in the last ten years. I think it's very difficult to have, like, I mean, it's very difficult to know really what 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 the Arab readers, what the Arab audience really want and interested in. I think one of the most problematic issue is that what the social me- media created is that most of us, including myself. Uh, living in a bubble. I think we are just hearing and talking and reading to each other. And uh, I think that uh, had a huge impact on us as a journalist. So it is seriously, it's very difficult for us to to, to measure and to know where, of course we try. I mean, we try through like trendings or th- social medias or certain stuff, but I don't think that is very authentic. Uh, uh, and uh, we, of course, there's another reason is that, I mean, in most Arab, in most of Arab countries, I think most of them, maybe all of them, may, um, uh, except few, I mean, you don't have surveys, you don't have, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's forbidden in many Arab countries to do surveys about the public opinion. So how would you know? How would you know whether the Syrians are really care now about the Palestinian cause or not? how would you know whether the uh, Palestinians care about what's happening in Idlib or not, or whether they care about what's happening in It's very difficult. So we always try, I mean, we assume as a journalist that we are leading, we are trying to lead them to tell them, okay, this is this is the editorial priorities to, today or tomorrow. But I don't know whether, if that is, if we are right or not, I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Others, do you have comment on this? Because, you know, when you talk about social media, there's also an assumption and, and, you know, you've already touched a bit of, upon that, like that uh, it is somehow reflective. But we know if you look at like Twitter analytics, for example, where it's popular, we know that in the Gulf, it's much more popular than in other uh, places, for example. Um, so I don't know, do you, Assam maybe like you would have uh, the, and more of like an idea on that or anyone else? And And really quickly because we're running out of uh, time thanks
4: (laughs) um i think yeah i think that notion i think it's like it kind of dissipated slowly i think it's like kind of with fragmentation i think it's like i think the region got uh, like i mean it's like uh, in uh, in a romantic sense that there is like you know that sort of sense i think has dissipated slowly um but also i think with the it feels like you know, that the, most people are being fed misinformation. It feels like that's that's not public opinion anymore. Like, it's just, it's opinion that's being, you know, as uh, Chomsky says, you know, it's like a, a manufactured. It's like everything uh, through those processes. So I feel like that's why it's very difficult to just be able to, uh, to listen to, properly like just knowing where you want to draw that line between I need to be able to listen to all opinions and get all of that in and take it into account versus knowing that most people are being fed poison and you're just sort of there it's being regurgitated your way so that makes it really difficult it's it's a very sad and difficult time when one wants to look at that I think thank you and Sorry, Sorry, yeah, I'm,
0: I'm just gonna ask like one final question and we'll start with you, Najla, just to follow up um, on this, because we had a question also about uh, misinformation. Um, so maybe, and actually in the research that we've been doing, in the we did focus group with um, younger audiences and we found out that there's a lot of suspicion basically over any content, any news content, like young people don't believe any news outlet basically like they don't expect to believe nor they nor do they believe so like there is keeping that in mind um and with an eye to the to the future as well like how do you how do you assess that and how do you think like kind of the future of, of Arabic news media is going like are there
2: mm-hmm. are
0: there like given all these challenges like what would be the solution just like final thoughts we'll start with you um Najla
1: uh, okay, I don't know if there's uh, any way to say any solutions now, but I'll just like uh, tell you something from the beginning when I started uh, to be active on Twitter. It was in 2009 with the um, Green Revolution in Iran. That's the purpose why I joined Twitter at that time. And uh, I, I went to quiet for a couple of years. Then, with the 2011 when everything happened in the, uh, Egypt, in Syria, in Tunisia, you know, the, uh, the rest was more active. But the, the um, all the time, I had something in my mind that I was trying to do until now is to remain a journalist on Twitter and not to be a user on Twitter. And then because we, we've seen many of journalists who did, just once they are on any uh, social platform, they forget that they are journalists and they act like the rest of us in a way. And they circulate uh, information that it's not accurate or just the wording or or every. Um, you know, every detail matters, sometimes how you reward your tweet or your post. So if uh, this probably the main idea for me that now, yeah, definitely it's journalism. It's about how to fight disinformation and how to just like to put the information in context. Um, maybe this will open the, the door for discussion later about how can you be objective and neutral with also keeping a political opinion about things. Uh, but um, you know, definitely there is uh, a room for this, to be journalists, to have political opinion, to do your uh, tweeting, posting properly, and to fight uh, disinformation. But uh, you can do this through an organization, you can do it through social media, but it's difficult. And it's not the solution by having journalists who would just like be as a user replying on every single comment. Um, It it needs like a a far more reflection on this. But uh, I think if we just like remain to the authentic idea that we are journalists, we are seeing the information accurately as possible with the right wording and putting it in the right context. If we st- stick to the simple uh, formula, then maybe it will be able to
0: start to reflect more on this. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Na- thanks, Najla. Um, May, do you have like uh, a concluding remark whether on disinformation or like, given your experience, like future trends um, in newsmaking.
3: So, the future trends of um, newsmaking is a really important question because we I remarked earlier on how the concept of news has changed drastically from the traditional sense to what we now see it as, and news used to be limited in a way to covering stories about those who were centralized in power. Now, this, you know, it's it's completely changed. You know, you could have a teenager starting a trend from their bedroom and they can themselves end up being the news somehow. Um, And we're finding people are much more critical of how stories are covered and will challenge us a lot more on what constitutes a story as news. Um, and then I mean I don't need to mention this to you, but like the Ukraine war and then what's the media coverage of that was was a big example. Um, but also our relationship I think with with news is has changed. Um, and I think uh, to speak to Asam's uh, experience, the line between news and entertainment is becoming blurry. Um, and that's not necessarily a criticism at all. At all, it's just important for us to re- realize that the one constant thing about the future is news is that the the concept of of news. Will keep evolving. So what we think we know about news today will completely be different. Um, and at, like similarly to how social media played a pivotal role in changing that, in a way we cannot anticipate what will happen next because it will depend on the continued evolution of technologies. And you know, I, I start to look into the metaverse as, a, as an example of that. How are we going to provide news in this completely new world? And what does metaverse mean for how audiences engage with news? You know, as terrifying as as that is, that is the future. And And you
1: have Ellen Musk now on board on Twitter. So imagine how this will, (laughs) you know, have an impact.
3: Absolutely. Um, And so with all these lines blurring, the technology is, you know, advancing quite quickly. News is still trying to catch up but would eventually have to find its place in, in this new universe. Um, and yeah, that's, you know, it, it, that's my way of saying, I don't know what the future is because the future hasn't arrived yet. Um, and I think it's just gonna surprise us. And I think we need to be open to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank
2: you very much. Um,
0: Raheem, um, yeah, very like, if, you, if you can tell okay. us what your vision
2: of like, the, 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 let's say- you know, the of... you know, Yeah, yeah very, very quickly because I know we ran out of time. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I really, I was listening carefully because I'm, I'm, I'm learning because we, are, we belong to different generations. But I think one thing I am quite sure of, I hope I'm not wrong, is that serious journalism is not over. Yes, I think, uh, yes, uh, what uh, May uh, uh, was saying is correct, but, you know, new, I mean, you have new trends, new generation, new tools. But at the same time, even like in the whole experience, I mean, we all know it, I mean, when TV came, a lot of people thought that radio would would be over. I mean, radio came like, we know it all, but I think now we have a lot of examples that the real journalism, professional journalism is not over. What is needed now is actually just just to adapt, to adapt, to transform, to modernize, to use the new tools, to present your content in very modern way, but it doesn't mean at all that you have to follow follow the trend on the social media. I think no. Actually, the social media once again was once again has proven that more professional journalism is needed. I and I hope I'm not wrong. Otherwise, you know, there's no place to work. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Ibrahim. And uh, finally, I like if you could. I don't know.
0: Are you are you the future of news? Not you personally.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Just me. Just me on my own. <laughs> the world is going to crumble. I'm because afraid. it
0: is like it, it is an interesting model of journalism because you know you follow the uh, like news stories. What's what's trending? It's it's almost like gauging public opinion in an in a jokey way. But it's but it is serious. You uh, know because it's providing content that that doesn't exist. Um, otherwise really, really in the Arab world so how do you see kind of uh, Al-Hadood as an example of like kind of future trends in, in Arab news?
4: Um, I guess it's um, I mean yeah I, I think in in the way it's like the, the best way for us yeah I think we are a periphery of the news uh, so it's like in an ideal situation we as I said earlier We'd be amplifying stories that aren't being amplified enough. So that is a function that has to do with the news, but that's not the news. Um, what I think when we do it very well is when we provide uh, interesting angles to look at stories from. So it is kind of an opinion piece, kind like it, it, it just sort of sits between things. Um, but yeah, um, I think for us, we're like just seeing it from our perspective. It's just we're. Um, we're a good lesson in the effort that needs to be put in order to get a story out the right way. So um, we don't we're not doing the the investigative part of journalism, so we do the research part and then we sort of, and then we take a lot of time to package it. So like um, like so our editorial meeting is a 45 minutes of discussing what the angle on a story should be. And then it's like, okay, let's put on the funny hat. How do we how do we say that? So, um, so but in our case, basically the the packaging takes more time. Like sometimes with the you know until the end of the day to be able to f- um, frame those stories in the right way.
0: Okay, great. When are you gonna have a TikTok? Uh, <laughs>
4: <laughs> we can't show people's faces. And I, I'm not a good TikTok face, you know, It's, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's it's being discussed.
0: Okay. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Thank well, you. thank you uh, very much. We ran out of time. Unfortunately, we could have, you know, went, went on much longer, but thank you very much for all the panelists for, you know, really wonderful and thoughtful remarks. And thank you for uh, the our own audience uh, who attended this and also for the uh, Middle East Center for Kendall and Nadine um, for helping in the organization. All right, have a, have a thank you. good rest of day. Same, thank you for
2: having us. Thank you so thank much. You, thank
0: much. Thank you, everyone. Yes, bye-bye. Nice to meet you all. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yes, you. Nice to meet you.
2: Cheers.